0: Welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today our guest is Stephen Donnelly. Now, Stephen is somebody that I've been wanting to interview for a very long time. I've had multiple guests mention that Steve was a mentor for them, and he played such as a big influence on their life and also just the forming and shaping of the industry as a whole. So, Steve... originally involved with Stephen Donnelly hire which then eventually became national hire and national hire eventually became Coates hire so he's had a very very influential career on the industry and has been involved in, in many groups of senior leaders that have traveled overseas together and today he's still involved with Donnelly Civil and also Vortex group of companies so I'm very very excited to just talk through Steve's experiences and what he's gone through, and just understand a little bit more about who is Stephen Donnelly. So, Steve, thank you for coming on the podcast today. To kick things off, can you talk to me about how you got into the equipment rental industry?
1: Firstly, uh, Mark, I'd like to say thanks very much for the invitation. It's uh, you know, it's a it's an enormous privilege because uh, the hire and rental industry has been such a big part of my life. Uh, if I can you know, just to talk about it and some of it will be history and those sorts of things, but it's, uh, it's a great thing to do. So thanks very much for the opportunity. The background to, uh, to me, I think that's what you ask, is As I'm my, my fortunate. I'm sort of, if you like, second generation, but almost third generation into the higher space. That uh, when I was a young kid, my dad was already in the equipment rental business, um, which was in Wollongong. He'd started a business with my mum in 1960 and uh, we lived on the premises where uh, where the, the hire, hire business was. It was air compressors and by the time I can really remember it, muck around in the yard, there were dump trucks and there were builder's hoists and there were 400 amp welders and there were you know a few other bits and pieces, a couple of rollers, a couple of old strophet and pit rollers and, and uh, those sorts of things. Uh, but I used to spend, you know, obviously when we lived on the premises, I used to spend the weekend in the workshop with the guys around the place on a Saturday morning. And uh, every afternoon I would, you know, sit on a dump truck and steer the wheel and, you know, just muck around. So that was my background. And I say I'm um, second generation through it that my dad had had an uncle who had a business in Sydney called AW Donnelly Air Compressor Hire. who was based at on Victoria Road Roselle. And uh, so, again, with Dad, from time to time, I would go up there and, and visit their higher locations, which are these days, one's are still a vacant lot and the other one is a service station. So it goes back a long time. And then I guess the, the third element to it was that I got particularly lucky that in when I was still at high school in between what was in those days fifth form and sixth form, I, uh, my dad, who... And we'll talk about it a bit later. My dad, who uh, through the um, you know, rental sort of industry, got to know some of the Americans. And I was fortunate enough that he organised for during that Christmas holiday for me to go and live in Los Angeles and work in a uh, rental business called Acme Rents, which was owned by the Grass family. So um, I guess all of those elements, that's what got me interested in the industry. And that's where it got me started.
0: Wow. So did you say that you actually lived on premise in Wollongong on, in the hire business?
1: Sure did. Yeah. Wow. So uh, my dad had, um, at the he was, a, um, he was actually a pastry cook and he had a, uh, um, my grandfather had a, a cake shop on Crown Street Wollongong called the Blue Ribbon. And in the backyard, dad had also had a couple of air compressors and used to, from his uncle, he used to do some stuff with the Wollongong City Council. And then the business grew a little bit bigger, and they moved down into what is 119 Auburn Street. And from 1959 or thereabouts uh, uh, until today, we still we still run a business there. If I took the phone to the uh, to the window, I'd show you down the yard and show you some some uh, you know. In, in fact, I might do it a bit later. I'll show you one of the original air compressors around the place.
0: And so, what was your evolution in terms of your roles in the business as you as you grew up?
1: On uh, when I was still at school, I used to come down and muck around in the yard and uh, just be a little bit you know a bit of a yard hand if you like by that by that time by uh, you know the dad's business had progressed into some industrial services, which again we still do inside the steelworks down here. Uh, but I would go to work with him on a Saturday and I would just you know you know... St- be in the wash bay, basically and just wash either earth moving machinery or equipment hire sort of machinery and the business was split in two there was a high business and there was a earth moving business industrial services so I would focus on the high business because it was a bit more child friendly and I would wash gear you know service some gear and uh, then it, uh, we also had a you concrete plant which were there weren't a lot of those but that was an American idea and I would uh, operate the you know, the front end loader and load the hopper up with sand and metal and cut open a few bags of cement and mix up, you know, cubic metre of concrete and put it into a trailer and customers would take it away. So that sort of, that was as as a kid, later on after I'd left school and and, uh, finished at university, I came back home and I was really onto a sales side. So used to Visit the metropolitan water Sewerage drainage boards, the department of main roads. You know, in those days, Australian Iron and Steel, really in a sales role, trying to think about uh, you know growing the business out. And it wasn't until later on I then took more of a management uh, role, uh, together with doing some other you know what I'd like to call finishing courses, some other you know courses at uh, at you know by correspondence or university, those sorts of things on sales and marketing, some economics, uh, and a number of finance courses.
0: Okay, and so growing up in that hire business, because hire was, it, it really was unknown to a lot of people back then. Like, what was it like running a business in an industry that was still really just developing?
1: Well, I guess I would, um, you know, my, my stronger memories, um, I think, you know, back in that late 70s, Early 80s, you know, the influence from what Kennard's Hire, MacBro Hire, uh, Recair, Coates Hire, those sorts of businesses were really driving a fair amount of change. Um, I wasn't really involved in the industry much before that. I had attended a couple of conferences and exhibitions with my dad, but I didn't really know a lot. But there had been, not long before that, there had been a credit crunch in Australia sort of the, the you know, mid-70s, I think, from recollection. And that had pour, put some pressure on building and construction companies. And there'd been quite a you know, severe shock to the industry. And so a lot of that, uh, that moved um, a lot of companies away from necessarily owning all of their fleet and into what I like to refer as, as an alternative finance sort of industry into the equipment rental business. And where you had uh, a number of companies, you know, big construction companies had big plant fleets, you don't see so much of that these days, particularly in the smaller fleet. You'll see the big guys have got some big big yellow iron and big uh, cranes and those sorts of things, but they really do rely upon our industry. So I think that was one of the big changes. I think the other thing was that uh, not only was that, that change in Australia, but I think those leaders of the industries, the Kennards, the McDonald's, those sorts of people, they were bringing ideas back from America, which really took it down the path of not just the construction industry had a demand for this product, which was well-serviced by the likes of Coates and Reckhead, but they uh, they found a, a market for the so-called DIY, and they were able to put smaller products in there, truck rental, you know, a lot of lawn and garden equipment, uh, trailers, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that grew the demand out for the industry. They were able to stock it full of, you know, a number of items, so not just having one lawnmower for rent, they'd have, you know, half a dozen lawnmowers, so it, it gave it real size and scale, I think, and with that, uh, there, was, uh, there was great progression.
0: And you mentioned that you spent some time in the US, and when I interviewed Andy Kennard, he mentioned how influential certain people in the US were just to becoming, to, for what Kennard's hire has become today as well, so what do you think you really learned from traveling over to the US?
1: Uh, I got lucky on a couple of counts. One of the counts was uh, through my dad who had developed that uh, friendship with the grass family who had a business in, you know, I think they had four branches in Los Angeles, one in Glendale, one in Pasadena, one in Lancaster, I think. And I really can't remember where the fourth one was. Um, So spending time with Larry grass and going to work with him each day and working in the, in that, and so that was 1975. But I still remember working in the tire shop with Gene and a few other uh, Russell, someone, and it was just when you're a 17 year old kid, it's fairly um, formative that you're working with those businesses and you're seeing how they're doing the business compared to how my dad was doing the business here in in Wollongong. So I learned a lot about that. Uh, I then um, at the same time or later on through. Barry McDonald and the Kennards, I got to uh, travel with those guys. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm younger than, than all of those, but they looked after me like a, you know, really, they were like a, another father to me. Um, I got to visit uh, and meet people like Sam Greenberg from Sam Shoe Drive and Jack Wanamaker and Northridge uh, North Rentals and a number of other people. I think it just taught me, you know, how important this business was uh, from an American perspective and therefore how important it could be from in the Australian perspective. And then the last element to it was with, um, which was really part of my early sort of stage, uh, was the grass family. There was a guy there um, who was the grandfather, a guy called Palmergrass. And uh Palmer had a, you know, a bit of a, I guess, a, a workshop not far from the Acme rents at Glendale. And he was a bit of an inventor. So he had come up with a Palmer uh, floor stripper, which has been a fairly common product in a lot of, you know, hire businesses back in the day. Uh, and he'd also developed a, um, a push-around lift, which was the Palmer lift, which was a, um, an early stage access piece of gear. So it was on four wheels and it had a telescopic sort of um, uh, you know, almost a, a glorified ladder is what it was. And he developed that idea and, and that to me, you know, sparked a bit of um, uh, awareness about, you know, what became elevating work platforms, sizzle lifts and boom lifts. Uh, and that became a pretty important part of my early days as being some of the first rental, bit, r- rental products that I rented out. So America was formative for those three reasons, just learning what the business was about, learning the generosity from um, people who ultimately became strong mentors of mine in the likes of you know, Andy and Barry and Sam Greenberg and you know, those sorts of people. And thirdly was that innovative product.
0: That's amazing. And I guess being such a young age as well, you must've clearly had a bit of a passion back then to really, I guess, learn and, and know that you're eventually gonna try and make a big difference.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I think it was just, I guess, hung, hang around that industry uh, and machinery and with my dad, uh, particularly uh, so many hours that you get to, you know, you just get to enjoy, like and love the product. And then when you uh, see the sort of from the elements that I've seen it and then you you, you get a passion, but you you develop some you know, some knowledge into that business. And then I think that it becomes infectious. And I think the character of our industry is because every, every day is different. Uh, it's an instantaneous business that, you know, a customer rings, they want their problem solved now. In order to solve it now, you've got to make sure that you've got things that are ready to go so it, it, it forces disciplines on your business. And I think all of those things were they just build and feed on one another and then because of, we might talk about it later, because of the nature of this industry, the capital-intensive nature and the cyclicality of it, it means that you've got to, you know, understand the finances of it. And I think you, you combined all that it just means you're, you're learning every single day. And um, I think you've got to be aware. And then if I go back to my, you know, my dad's uncle who was in the air compressor hire business, you know, he, he, I think uh, the industry had been good to them, but they ultimately exited the industry because you know air compressors had become uh, silenced, and uh, they had a lot of unsilenced product, and it was really no longer acceptable. So there's the modernization of the industry that you've got to keep going. So there's a lot of you know disciplines that you can bring to it, but there's a lot of in- industrial disciplines and market disciplines. So I think all of that makes it a really, really dynamic and a very enjoyable industry to be part of.
0: And so what was the evolution for you to eventually have your own hire business?
1: I went back to America. So I'd I'd been here working, went back to America with Dad um, and had been to ARA in, I think, uh, Las Vegas and had then seen more of these um, Palmer lifts which had developed a little bit more and it actually become what was called a mark lift. So there were scissors and booms. Um, and realized that there was a few others around the place. There was JLG and there was, you know, you know, a few other um, flying carpet, I think from memory, a few of those things and could see that um, that that business and Larry grass at that stage was working for a business called high Lift incorporated. I went to visit him in, in uh, Washington, state, so Portland and a couple of the other cities, Seattle, I think. And I went to visit him. And these businesses just had scale mark. These were four or five branches. Guy's name was Sed Masterton. Uh, he had, you go to a branch and they were building big construction projects, but there would be three and four hundred scissor lifts and boom lifts sitting in the yard. And from memory it was sort of a mix of two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds scissors and one-third booms. And that was a, um, an industry that was very much at, at its infancy in Australia. And when you get over there and you see how big it could be, um, just like I'd said that, you know, this industry moves on. I came back and realised that, you know, air compressors weren't going to be around the place forever. Or there were other, other sorts of equipment that scissor lifts, boom lifts or elevating work platforms were going to be one of them. Came back to Australia, had a look at the market. Um, uh, Kennards had, had picked up, a, I think, an, an early one, a flying carpet maybe, but they only had a couple. Uh, and I think that uh, um, Des Whelan in Melbourne had uh, started renting them out in a sort of a specialty business. Recair had a little bit. There was a business called KS Electrics, I think, back in those days. And there was um, uh, Linmac or ja- – uh, yeah, I think Linmac were around the place. So it was very early days and I thought that was the place to be. So I bought some secondhand gear from Ed Masterton in America, imported some gear, a couple of the other industry guys uh, participated with it and uh, uh, in Des and Andy and, and uh, that, that really got us going.
0: Who were some of the people that were involved with you in the early days of, of Stephen Donnelly hire? And I guess what markets were you serving in terms of uh, locations?
1: Uh, um well timing was well, i'll start with the timing the timing was really bad because we we're the markets we were serving was Wollongong and uh focused on industry here in the town so there was uh you know at that stage it had Then i think it was in the process of changing from australian iron and steel to bhp but there was metal manufacturers there is er and s there was a number of industries with big big factories around the place uh you can imagine that scissors and boom lists would have a natural fit there what, what I didn't see coming was uh, a recession in uh, 1981 or thereabouts uh, and there was mass redundancies and layoffs here in the local area and um, you know when you're uh, a scissor lift and a boom lift is both a labor-saving device productivity improvement and in- improved safety around the place uh, as you can imagine, in a in a recession, there's not a lot of maintenance going on anyway or new building work going on. So the demand, and for all those other reasons, the demand wasn't great. So the guys that I had um, working with me and helping me at that stage was a guy that had worked for my dad for many years, a guy called Freddie Lee. Uh, and he's, he's still around, long time retired, but uh, he's still around. Uh, and uh, another guy who... Um, uh, or two other guys, as the business grew and morphed and changed directions a couple of times. A guy called Bill Dawson, who'd started with my dad as again as an apprentice, and uh, and you know, came to to work with us in what was called High Lift Rentals. We named it after the business in America. And then a third guy, Ronnie Lawson, who I played a bit of footy with. Uh, he came on as uh, as being you know a sales and marketing sort of guy. So all local people, all in Wollongong, just trying to service this local community.
0: Okay, and so then what was then the evolution to become national hire and then that that process?
1: Yeah, the, it was the um, just the absolute need. The industry had turned down. Uh, it was pretty tough times. It was uh, not high demand for it. Um, really didn't want to push... You know, Wollongong and the Illawarra is bounded by an escarpment, so it's not, you know, transportation is is can be a little bit costly and difficult. So really didn't want to go outside the market area. So uh, expanded the the product. So went from you know scissors and booms to they were building the wheat terminal down here. So they needed some four hundred amp welders. So you know bought a few four hundred amp welders and uh, that went onto the job site and they came out of a business called. AA Arc, which was Ron Williams in in Melbourne, so bought those up into here, rented those out. That probably grew on to being other other products around the place, some air compressors, some dump trucks into that, you know, the old old Muir Hill dump trucks and some other sort of products. are so very much an industrial services sort of business. And then I guess over the number of years, it then progressed into you know the broader product range. Um, That got us to a size in Wollongong um, that, and I spoke, uh, I mentioned before that this industry has got some, you know, I think some things that you've got to understand to manage it through, but that got us to a size in a marketplace that I really didn't want to be impacted by again, another cyclical downturn in a regional marketplace. So we went looking for, to grow the business into, you know, outside the area. Uh, didn't really want to go and do greenfield sort of startups or, or new branch sort of locations uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, went, went on the acquisition hunt and uh, acquired a business in Sydney called Portaloo and Shed Rentals. And that was based at North Ryde from a fellow called Dave Roebuck and uh, went and grew that business. And I think when we bought the business, it had 80 portable toilets and 20 odd sheds or something. Uh, and then, uh, so that was the first, um, step out of the Illawarra area that was into the Sydney marketplace.
0: Wow. And then, so what, from there, it was really just con- consistent growth through acquisition or was it building up the right team? Like, how did you really grow to the next level then?
1: A combination of two things. Um, and I might not get the timing right. Um, but, uh, um, the we used the customer base that we had around the sheds and the toilet business to continue to grow that business. Um, but we also added the uh, increase the product set. So we did um, have some scissors and booms that were going through that market. Um, and we also uh, uh, recognised that we needed you know, at some sort of time, some other marketing and management sort of skills to it. And so we employed a guy at at sort of that time by the name of Greg Parfitt, who uh, has then been very instrumental in the growth of what then became, after a while, uh, national hire, and I can jump into it shortly, but Greg was with us to bring some disciplines. He he came to us from um, uh, one of the concrete companies and uh, we recruited him, and and uh, I think the skills that he, his enthusiasm won, but but I think that he also brought to the business. He'd had some tertiary qualifications, and I think that that mental discipline and uh, and thought process and thinking things through and research uh, brought a, an element to the business that was um, absolutely crucial to our sort of growth. At at that same sort of time, two things were happening. Um, or in, in and around those sorts of times, two things were happening. One was that um, uh, that with um, Barry McDonald from Macro uh, hire, who uh, had built a very uh, strong and successful um, rental business, um, we were traveling again at a conference in America, and we became aware that there was some um, second hand scissors and booms available for sale through the hertz equipment rental corporation business the you know just and just recently the the long time leader of that business Dan Kaplan has passed away uh, who was you know i think was um, uh, was uh, you know again one of the leaders in the American sort of industry but uh, somehow we we um, uh, came came across uh, Uh, Dan and that they were selling some product around the place and together with Barry, who was far more astute than me, uh, we organised to buy some um, uh, second-hand equipment and we were able to bring that to Australia and that formed a very strong basis of giving some volume and I think it was a very big kick-along for our business Um, and uh, and that grew that out. So that gave us a, a, a deeper, broader product. And, um, and a bit more scale into that business. Uh, and then at that same sort of time, not long after that, um, GKN were wanting to grow and develop into the Australian marketplace. They, uh, they were making some acquisitions and sitting there and seeing what they had done, a deal with, with Barry, that we wanted to get on and ultimately with our business we, I wanted to observe that we wanted to get on and grow our industry and grow in scale and because we needed to become more relevant. So we needed to be, for those same reasons before, those economic sort of reasons, that we wanted to be protected by downturns and so we didn't want to be one product game, we didn't want to be one regional town game, we wanted to, you know, grow the business. And then we were, um, we were able to uh, merge Um, what was the hire business and the high lift business and the Portaloo and shed business with a couple of other businesses in the St. George hire and, uh, and uh, Abbott hire. So with the Wallace family, we then went on and grew the business uh, through to the public sort of arena Uh, through that sort of uh, time. We got some wonderful people and again, more turning points that, you know, a guy called Adrian Manning who was, Probably doing his degree at the time. Probably working in behind a counter at the time. Uh, he then progressed through to being strong leader for us, and uh, has been one of the the the, found the the sounding boards and the and the you know really one of the foundation sort of people of growing you know that that business from that merged entity through the national hire through into later life. So and I think they're the things that was timing the market changes and people around the place, Mark.
0: Yeah, Greg Parfit, like now he's, he's another very influential person. I think he's running Orange Heart at the moment. And was there anyone else that was really around that? Neil Wallace was another person that you mentioned. Like he's someone that a lot of people have mentioned that has been very influential on them. Was there anyone else around that time that you can remember?
1: I think that, you know, there are, there's a broad range of people in in, in almost numbers of... of um, Numbers of, you know, today in our industry today, people who are not in the industry today, people who've retired, who have people who have moved on. But um, you know, we had uh from those early sort of times, um there's been, you know, people who knock around the industry in different areas in the likes of um, you know, Peter Evans and the Mark Snooks of the world, and there's the Colin Colin Cohen's of the world, there's you know, just if you gave me um, another five minutes, I could rattle off about 40 or 50 names for your market to be that long. Uh, you know, one of the things we used to do is uh, when we we're a public company, we, we genuinely did think that people were the strongest asset of a business. And uh, we used to put everybody's name on the inside back cover or the back cover of the annual report and list their names out around the place. I'm not sure how smart that was at the end of the day because it you know, made for all those people. So t- this, uh, this is before LinkedIn, but it made for those people as a target. But it was you know, our way of saying that, you know, they're, they're an incredibly important asset of the business. Um, you know, the, the, the risk I run as trying to rattle through names is that, that I offend someone and I, I wouldn't want to do that for the, the primary reason is that uh, each of these people have just been so fundamentally important to what we do. You know, there's absolutely in all businesses, you have, you know, disagreements with, with people and I've probably had my fair share with the likes of, you know, Greg Parfitt and Adrian Mannings around the place, but also you have your enormous respect for people and, and at each level and each element, people uh, continue to tr- contribute. In not only not only from those days, but I'd say that in my other business sort of things I go today, there's still some of those people I've worked with for twenty and thirty years, and I still get to uh, to work with them today. So,
0: yeah, it must be very fulfilling knowing all that as well, like watching someone go from, as you said, behind a counter to second in charge at Codes now.
1: I think uh, you know I, I was um, in contemplating today a few days ago. I was thinking about that um, there was a, in sort of, I don't know, 2002, 2003, that sort of vintage, um, 2004 maybe, um, we we had a meeting. So there was, you know, those guys that you've mentioned and there was uh, Shane Horvath uh, was there and a couple of other people. And we're just thinking about, you know, where the industry is going to go to. And you think about, you know, what's it's going to be like and what are the natural you know ways that the game's going to go you know where where is where does volvo sit where does atlas copco sit where did the cat rental store sit which wasn't in australia at that stage but it was coming um you know what is what is um uh what does the um, the hardware guys do you know etc cetera, etc cetera. i think when you can sit around with those guys it's very fulfilling to get get what they um, their ideas at that sort of stage and reflect back on those and then to have a look at where they've all gone and as I said, you know, just huge elements, huge slabs of, of all of the people I've worked with over the time have gone on to be um, particularly um, influential in high uh, in, in businesses and or our industry around the place.
0: Yeah, and with so many people, like so many executives and business owners and just people that are maybe outside the industry now that have worked through the business through the 90s and the 2000s with National Hire, like, can you describe what the culture was like and what it was like to work at National Hire? Because like, it sounds like the growth was like unbelievable as well in terms of the acquisition path.
1: One, because it came from a family basis, you know, vis my dad, but also the camaraderie, that he was experiencing by the other guys in the in the hire industry it gave you that very um you know friendly supportive you know that's a different that's a different um culture to what you would normally expect in business that you've got these guys who are genuinely out there trying to improve a broader industry and grow an overall marketplace out, you know, the Nev Kennards, the Andy Cannards, you know, the Gordon Esdons, the, you know, um, the Rob Wallace's, the you know, Jim Brown's, the, there's just hosts and hosts of these people who were genuinely just trying to see what they could do about growing the business. So I think because I got, you know, that element uh, very early on, I think that was, um, Hopefully, that's part of the culture that came in. And then I think because of um, just that sort of awareness and understanding of the economics or the structural um, benefits and challenges this industry poses, so you're, you're doing quite a bit of thinking and, and progressive. I think because of we recognised that we wanted to grow, we thought that that. Um, You know, profitability, scale, customer service, you know, there's a number of key performance indicators that we want to have. I think you're driving that sort of degree of, if you like, excellence around the place. But in doing that, you're searching for what it's going to be. So there was a thirst for knowledge and that came into, you know, IT areas that, you know, what information can you get out about your products? What are the good products? Where are they working? What's the R&M on them? How often are they up for? You know, all of those sorts of things. So that built into the culture too. So I think it becomes a, and as I said before, I've touched on it, there's that element of innovation around. So I think that when you're trying to innovate so you can be competitive for the customer and provide the customer the greatest solutions around the place, I think they all came into the, to the, the melting pot. And it was certainly fast and furious. You know, in the early days, we had a guy called Sean Swift who's gone on to be one of the CEOs of one of the big um, auto companies here in Australia. You know, those guys, clever, smart sort of people, but they're looking through it and they really are providing challenges. And I think that goes into the culture. So it's it's a supporting, nurturing sort of culture. Uh, People want to be around, but it's also fast moving and it's challenging and it's, it's driven by that rapid demand that customers want. You know, they, they ring up now, as I said before, and they want that service straight away. So there's, a, there's just that high impact immediacy around the place and it becomes, and it's just going to, and that becomes fun. So then you're having fun in the environment. Like there might be all sorts of challenges and stuff that goes on, but you can have a, you can have a whole lot of fun with people.
0: Mm. And I was going to say, it's almost like if you've got that fun and you know, you're making a change to the industry and you're really just trailblazing, really, it, 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 just, uh, it just creates this energy that's like passed on to others in the, in the business, I assume as well, because I spoke to so many people that have worked for or been associated with the likes of like national hire and, and they can't speak highly enough of, of working for that company.
1: Yeah, well, I think the New South Wales government had some what they called training awards, sort of things, which were back in the um, uh, in the early sort of '90s, probably. And my sister Megan and Ronnie Lawson, who I had mentioned before, you know, they had they were had done a hell of a lot on the training sort of side, and and they put us up a small business from Wollongong with probably a branch in Sydney. They put us up to some training awards, and we won some training awards. So the business was quite progressive and trying to understand, even at those early times, what it is that you needed to do to, you know, retain people, uh, reward people, and, um, you know, provide those people with enough skills and knowledge and capability so they could, you know, grow the business out for us.
0: All right, so with National Hire becoming what it is, can you just explain the size of the organisation when it started to become involved with the cat rental store, and then eventually coat
1: In two thousand and three, four, the business was about thirty odd million dollars in revenue, maybe a tad more than that. And we had been, and that's when we got um, a placement was done with with West Track, and West Track were the um, Caterpillar. Um, uh, from Western Australia and part of the um, uh, Kerry Stokes um, uh, businesses, and they at that stage were Caterpillar had a strategy of the cat rental stores, and Westtrack were in the process of um, uh, to sort of two thousand three, two thousand four, that sort of time were going to take over the. Uh, dealerships for New South Wales and the ACT and an important element of that um, dealership was the cat rental store businesses and so um, there was a placement made uh, and they took control effectively of the National High Group and um, all of the management stayed around uh, and we then got in and ran the business Uh, for a number of years, uh, rolling out uh, initially cat rental stores here in New South Wales. So that was a rebranding of all of the stores. And um, uh, so that meant putting in natural fit sort of products like uh, skid steers, uh, mini excavators, uh, compaction equipment, and then rolling up to larger fleet um, backhoes, front end loaders, um, integrated tool handlers and excavators around the place. So that was the first element. Um, the the business in those days, we had a couple of branches in Victoria and we had a couple of branches in Queensland. So we had a, a bit of a footprint. Um, but in New South Wales, our only our, it was only in New South Wales that we had a responsibility to, to co-brand. So that was the, the point behind it. Um, very quickly, uh, we then acquired um, the All Light business and the uh, cat rental stores in Western Australia. So we became a, you know, a consolidated business that had, um, you know, rental businesses across Australia and, and uh, the access to what were key products in, in uh, lighting towers and uh, All Light also um, assembled water pumps. Uh, for dewatering, and also uh, um, uh, distributed the FG Wilson generator range. So that was step one, or step two. And then the the next side came some other corporate activity, which we were, um, you know, happy to get out and grow, which included the acquisition of AH Plant Hire, which was a, uh, you know, the former uh, Vic Roads business in, in Victoria which had a lot of dry hire of excavators and et cetera, et cetera. So we were able to use that as a, as a basis of the business to get on and grow further. So there were a couple of elements to accelerate the growth through. you know, One, that, um, that uh, the, the placement with Westrack that then got the responsibility for the cat rental store. So it, it put us into a different position. From our perspective, it was important because it gave us broader product range Uh, And it gave, uh, you know, an association with a wonderful brand like uh, the Caterpillar brand, uh, but also with the Westrack business, which had, um, you know, were a first-class business in Western Australia and with rolling out their business in New South Wales, they would be an important element into construction and mining. So for us, it was a a win-win situation. That then led through to... In two thousand seven, two thousand and eight, uh, a, um, a structured deal to acquire the Coates High business, which was um, uh, Carlisle, the private equity guys, partnered with with um, with ourselves to acquire uh, the Coats business, and then. The next element was we merged the national hire business together with the uh, Coates Hire business and the branding changed naturally to the larger business being the Coates Hire business. I think in those days, Coates Hire was turning over sort of circa, you know, 1.1, 1.2 billion and national hire by that stage, it got up to about 360 odd million. Um, And we... um, uh, the National High Business stayed as a listed business, um, but it and what it did its only operating business at that stage was the Light business, uh, and also its its fifty percent ownership in the merged um, Hire uh, slash National High business.
0: Wow! So like so much happened in that time. Like, did, did the culture change, or did your branding change? When you became involved with the, the cat rental store,
1: uh, I think each one of those um, transaction uh, had extraordinary change on the business. I think the um, I think the uh, the first one was the you know, just the placement with Westtrack in the first instance, which you know then was about um, the proceeds from the from the placement was about um, going and broad opening more stores, but also broadening our product range and and uh, and growing out the um, you know that offering that that wasn't that available in New South Wales. There was um, Coats and Recare and a number of other people. Conplant etc. Don Steen did a good job with compaction equipment, but getting hold of um, you know. Uh, wheel loaders, excavators, IT carriers, backhoes, for example. There was really only AH plant hire doing that to any sort of size. There were a number of smaller people doing it, but a lot of it was all owner operators or that sort of thing. So I think just getting that product coming in and broadening us um, brought some new disciplines and, and, and certainly change. Uh, there's a lot of good change. There's always some, some you know, not so good change around the place, but it certainly did change. I think then the next couple of elements that the, the merging with the, the all light um, business and the West track cat rental store brought different cultures to the business. You know, some people were like the culture that we had um, some were more entrepreneurial and, and uh, you know, really sales driven, which was the, uh, the all light sort of um, culture, um, which was again, a mix of a business, which was into the assembly. They had, um, a metal fabrication, certainly, but they also had the assembly of lighting towers and pumps and, and uh, pre-delivery of generators. Uh, so they, again, had a different culture. And I think, again, into Western Australia uh, and particularly in the mining areas, it's, it's again, it's a slight nuance to what we do in, in, in city sort of locations. It's a slightly different product set, uh, slightly different customer base. So each one of those steps drives... Uh, substantial change, and some of those, including the AH AH1, are just so big um, that you end up doing, uh, you know, you you go looking for what everybody calls synergies, which are uh, cost outs and cost reductions around the place and undoing duplication of branches. And again, that change is can be um, very unsettling and and, uh, uh, quite brutal and quite sudden. And again, that changes the, the the mix and the culture of businesses. And again, as well as you can try to handle it and do a good job on it, it's always going to be change and it's always going to be, you know, I'd like to call it messy, Mark.
0: I can imagine. And and you mentioned that when National Hire acquired Coates, which is just, yeah, I can't imagine what it's like for the smaller organisation buying the, the, the billion-dollar company. Like, how did that sort of go down?
1: Well, I think a couple of things there. Remember, it was not just national hire, but it was, um, you know, it was national hire and the Carlisle uh, private equity guys. Um, uh, they, the, the transaction from our side um, was certainly driven by, um, you know, the likes of Peter Gamble and, and Andrew Aiken, who, you know, um, had, had uh, great, skills and knowledge, financial management sort of skills and knowledge. Um, the Carlisle guys in, in uh, Simon Moore and Matt Hunter, et cetera, brought knowledge about these structured leverage transactions and the uh, national hire Coates transaction was the last of the leveraged um, public-to-private transactions before the GFC hit. And when that came through, you know, it obviously put um, uh, pressure back on the business because no one knew how long the GFC was going to last for and therefore you're, you're, you're making further changes to the business to to suit the market demands at that time. Um, and I think also at that time, um, you know, Coates had been through um, a terren- terrific growth sort of time. I think they had, you know, a couple of... Um, uh, elements they had a sweep and plug uh, acquisition strategy where they had gone and acquired a lot of uh, branches and some uh, gained some specialty products around the place and scaled themselves up. You know, the leadership uh, by the, their team had done a um, a pretty good job at those things and getting their market grown. Uh, and I think that they could see that putting the two businesses together made good. Um, Good economic sense, and we could deliver a better product set to uh, customers. But notwithstanding, it's a big change, and um, when you uh, when you put those two businesses together, um, uh, it's going to be it's going to be messy. Because as I said, you're looking for you know, structural change to the businesses, and um, and with that is uh, comes the, the the impact on people.
0: And so then, what was your involvement uh, after the the acquisition of Um
1: I went on to the um, the board of national, uh, the board of Coats Oil, uh, and um, stayed around there for until about two thousand and twelve. Uh, in that time. I'd been heavily involved in the what was called the Office of Integration. So that was trying to think through and plan out um, how we would combine the businesses together, how we could do that um, uh, most effective on on the sort of the people side, but also on the branches side, which which made sense on the on the branches, uh, uh, how you. Um, you know, did simple things like how did you get through and rebrand all the product? How did you get through and renumber all the product? How you'd stock take it in the first instance? You know, whether you could get um, one facility, could take all of the product. You know, how would you, where you ended up with duplication, management duplication, how you could go through a process um, that would be um, as fair and reasonable as you could possibly do it um so we had a, an office of integration that was made up of a, a few people uh, people from inside the business um and uh, the the advantages and outside consultants and so used that and that that took some period of time because there's some areas that you've got to particularly look at uh so i was there for a for a while and then um uh then in the 2012 i think um uh the is when um, uh, National High was then privatised uh, by the Seven Group. So it was about four or five odd years or something.
0: What companies are you currently associated with today?
1: The, uh, the, the, main, the main two, I guess, is uh, Donnelly Civil, which is, I like to call it the sort of the heritage business that uh, um, still operates from Auburn Street in Wollongong, which is where my mum and dad had started. I spoke about that before. It, it is an um, industrial services, civil contracting uh, and some plant hire business. Uh, it is uh, the main customer base is the local area, again, councils, uh, Blue Scope and some of the local industry. Um, and it's doing, you know, wide and varied sort of jobs, but... Uh, it will service the steelworks by helping maintain ladles, uh, do work up on the blast furnace cast house floor, uh, do road repairs, road works, uh, general um, maintenance, cleaning up around the plant, uh, some projects and contracting, and also services uh, the local councils for doing drainage works, uh, some minor road works, and uh, and those sorts of projects. So that takes a bit of time and we've got a lot of people there who have been in that business for some considerable time so that's that's fun and enjoyable um and we're looking to get on and continue to grow that business uh and then um equally as exciting involved in a business which is called vortex vortex is a um a business that's uh, essentially came from the um Water pumps and water pump uh, contracting business. So it's supplying uh, pumps and specialty services into construction, mining uh, industry. Uh, does clean up and has expanded into uh, some power generation and some uh, contracting services for instrumentalities. It's a business that's got um, it's it's uh, got a footprint around Australia. Um, one of the key, it's been made up of a couple of acquisitions. Uh, one of the key ones was uh, out of Western Australia, the mobile dewatering business, which is the Seb's family. And uh, uh, the Seb's family is still involved with us. And, and, uh, um, and James uh, sits on the board with us and helps us grow and develop the business. And the Vortex business, which uh, came out of... Uh, Newcastle which was uh, Gil Milton's business and Gil is the you know, the GM of the business and takes an active role in the rental association and he's really getting out and growing the business out and um, you know we've got some key projects in you know Western Australia Victoria uh, Queensland New South Wales so uh, it's been it's been a business that's been quite uh, or not quite it's been very innovative And so um, dewatering services, uh, you just can't take water from sites and and, uh, discharge it. You've got to be able to make sure you you clean and and prepare it available for discharge. So the guys have been very smart of what they're doing and there's some complexities to the business where um, uh, they've got to um, have uh, great knowledge and and, uh, capability. So it's exciting to be with those people as they think through all those sorts of issues.
0: Yeah. And I guess that, that rental is a little bit different as well because it's really engineering rental or solution design rental. And just talking to a few people that are involved in it, like they're, they're so excited about what that business could look like in the next few years and sort of what it's become as well. And, And the marketing side is very, very strong as well.
1: And when you think about it, water pumps have been around for absolutely ever. And there's not a lot has changed with them. Um, and, you know really my first exposure got to pumps you know many years ago in, uh, in Wollongong uh, when we, we uh, bought some pumps to service the local industry down there and gained some knowledge on them and then um, then put some pumps on the Gore Hill tunnel years ago that had some tele- telemet- telemetry on them so we could monitor them from afar and, uh, and these days you can now, you know, monitor and manage what the pumping systems are doing and, and movement of water around the place. For example, in in some of the mining areas, from offices in uh, in Perth and wherever. And then you go to the other side of it, which is all about, as I said, the the um the science of it and the and the and the and the, and the water and the discharge and the environmental impacts of it. So you 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 know and you're picking up water on on job sites and and you need to um to be able to discharge it but you've got to do it in an environmentally friendly uh, manner and i think those things will continue to change um, and where you need to um, put pumps onto job sites and you dewater the sites and lower the water um, so you can actually do an excavation uh you know it, it um it's uh, there's a there is a, uh, as, you, as you call it, there's an engineered solution to it.
0: Yeah, true. And so if we were to fast forward 10 years or so, what do you think that the landscape of the equipment rental industry will look like?
1: It's a, uh, it's a really good question. I did listen to a couple of your podcasts where um, Pete Lankin and, and Andy did speak. Um, and I think it was Pete who spoke about uh, rental penetration. And rental penetration is this American indicator that talks about, or my understanding, but it talks about, you know, the manufacturers, how much product they they comes off their production lines, how much of that, what percentage of that finished goods machinery goes into the rental channel and how much goes into the end user market um, and how it's, it's, you know, appears to be growing but the penetration hasn't got to... You know, it's end game in America, yet that penetration arguably in Australia is even, you know, lower. Uh, and I guess the examples you can talk about this is if you go and have a look at scissor lifts and boom lifts, there's a whole lot of that stuff that goes into rental channels and only a small portion, or it appears to me only a small portion goes into the end user market. So I think that says, you know, if you follow that that progression, then rental is going to become um, continue to grow and there will be uh, greater and greater demand for the product, I think it also makes sense because it is a you know it's it's for the end users the cust- our customers they're able to get the right product when they want it um, in the condition the reliability and everything has been outsourced to the rental company so if you're just going to manage a business and you want to be capital light, then it makes absolute sense for customers to continue to rent so I think uh, the industry is just going to continue to grow in relevance and prominence around the place. I don't think – I think we're, we are bigger than what most people think. Um, I don't think – and I'm not sure we need it, but I don't think people understand how really relevant we are and important we are to the whole, you know, um, work chain in, a, in, a, in, in, the, in the marketplace. So the industry will continue to grow. I think that, um, uh, you know, clearly uh, the climate change issues and, uh, and uh, changes that's going on to decarbonisation, et cetera, et cetera, you know, by 2050, everybody wants to be zero emissions. So that means that a lot of our product is going to change from being, you know, all, all diesel or, you know, petrol to being more battery um, powered. And a lot of small hand tool tools are already that, that way. So I think we'll end up with more trucks and machinery that's going to be uh, have battery electric. Now, that's not all going to happen in 10 years, but we're going to get there. I think there are already some uh, English-based or London-based uh, rental companies, hire companies, who are doing their deliveries by electric vehicles around. So I think that's just an indicator and that, that will grow more. That will pose further changes on the industry. I think that'll happen. I think the um, the whole drive for uh, continued um, or the need to continue to improve our safety uh, will happen around the place. Um, I think about the the people sort of issue, Mark, and you know, you know, we don't have enough uh, skilled trades around the place, uh, so somehow we're going to have to, you know, um, do better job, not just the rental industry, but also the broader community on on getting tradespeople up who are, um, you know, mechanics and electrical people, et cetera, et cetera, around so we can maintain our products. So I think there's going to be an element of people issue and, and whether rental companies do that all themselves or whether it's outsourced to other people. And so, you know, you can think, continue to... Um, thin down what you do. Um, and I think that there's the, the the great the great challenge of everybody faces in the um, capital cities as to how you get a, a distribution point that's close enough to where all of the markets are. And so how are you downtown and can you do that by branches or does real estate become so expensive and you can't put enough on that space? So I think there'll be those sorts of changes and you know, 20 and 30 years ago, I and, you know Andy Kennard mentioned this, that a group of private guys had travelled around, the, around um, the world visiting various places and, you know, um, I was lucky to be one of those people and when we went to Japan to have a look at rental businesses that were, you know, three and four storeys and you'd have a lift in them and, and uh, you know, a method of being able to get the product up and down on these small footprint locations um, I can see that there's going to have to be changes to distribution around. So, so, growth, challenges, and distribution.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? The way we store equipment. I know I went out to, I think, Kennard's Hire at Penrith, and they've got one of those storage units where they can put equipment in and sort of like goes up and around. It's like yeah. a German product. Yeah. And they can, they can store it. So, basically, they're storing up rather than out. Yeah. Which is very interesting.
1: That's going to happen. And I think that um, you, know, you could even see you a know, number of years ago, you could see a number of the American rental guys were going to two-story buildings. So that's going to happen in, in uh, that storage distribution. It's going to become bigger and bigger element.
0: And, and you mentioned the, the perception of, of the industry outside of the industry. And I actually had a guest that he used to actually work at National Hire as well, which is Martin Costello, he works yep. at all tracks plan higher now. And one of the things that he said about what he liked about the podcast was that hopefully it promoted the industry better because he said his opinion was that the industry is really good at promoting themselves within themselves, but really bad at promoting themselves outside of the industry.
1: Yeah. uh, uh and again, Martin's another great guy. Um, I'd agree with what Martin says. Uh, and I think that's, um, if, if I just take it to a, quite a slightly different track, I'd say that in Australia, I think we're absolutely blessed. I think, you know, I haven't obviously been travelled for the last 12 months, but prior to that, when you would go around and have a look at, you know, businesses like, um, uh, you know, uh, Kennard's Hire, Coates Hire, uh, you know, th- these are world-class businesses who from all aspects of the business, from, you know, uh, leading edge in some technology, um, how they make gear available, their reliability of gear, um, you know, their adoption of innovation, um, you know, the way they do it. We are really um, blessed in Australia to have these really super um, quality businesses uh, and then, uh, and again, I'm not sure that we really recognise internally how good we are at that sort of stuff, uh, and that would probably go for a lot of other businesses that I haven't mentioned, but, you know, that you know, some of these businesses, uh, you, know, the, you know, the likes of the shore hires around the place, you know, really do an outstanding job with brand presentation, you know, uh, expertise, knowledge, engineered solutions, all those sorts of things. So there's a whole lot of reasons why we should... Um, be more responsive and more respected around the place. And I I think that's just one of the problems in our our industry, Mark, that we are so damn good at having um, a gear that's available on time, reliability's good, instantaneous support, all of those sorts of things, that the customer just expects it. And it's not fully recognised or appreciated what companies go to do it and then there's there are a number of us so we can be you know changed out for other people around the place um so again you don't necessarily you know get that that uh uh, credibility or respect around and i think that's just one of the hard things in in our industry it's just i'm not sure that we can really change it i think that um there would be some jobs and projects around the place that they would be able to measure and gather the data on it and understand how important, how important that reliability and, and uptime it is. And that might get credit back to one businesses, but uh, I'm not sure the whole industry gets that. And that's strange, isn't it? Because as I said, this industry has really grown because of the generosity of, um, you know, those early sort of guys in it who formed the industry, the Neville Canards, the Andes, the Barrys, the Barry McDonalds and those sorts, of the Des Wielands, all those, Ray Kelsey's, the Jim Brown's, all those people, they all put so much into our industry to give it to where it is today. And there are so many people who are continuing to do that, participate to grow the business. And, you know, you mentioned the likes of the Peter Lankins over the time and the Neil Wallaces and, you know, it is still a very generous industry that people put in, you know, Gil Milk puts in our business, puts in all, there's a whole, you know, there's a, just a wealth of people who do it that continues to grow and put our business at the leading edge. But I'm not sure, again, as Martin says that the, 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 the wider world understands how good a service we really provide.
0: No, oh, that's completely, completely true. And yeah, for me, like I've been in the industry for 10 years now, so I'm still relatively new compared to, a lot of the names that you just rattle off but for me i'm just so proud of like the industry in itself and i guess how it's evolving and and how passionate people are in the industry as well and, and that's part of the reason which well i think i'm still around like I, I just i love that everyone is sort of working together in in alignment like it's very rare to have an industry where you've got competitors that know each other so well
1: yep yeah and i mean um let me let me just give you this i just I have lunch with um, some of these older guys and I asked them uh, some time ago, you know, what were some of the most influential things or uh, what, what, what has been really important to them. And so let me just, you know, uh, Andy Kennard says uh, he's got three things. He's got uh, Sam Greenberg, Nev Kennard being such a leader and Prue, his wife, you've got, uh, Barry MacDonald, who, who talks about his dad, because his dad was brutally honest with him. He got from Nev Kennard about having a notebook so he could always write down various ideas. Again, he had his wife in, Marg. Uh, and then he had uh, Sam Greenberg down again. So there's a sort of a, a common theme there. You've got Des Whelan, who credited a lot of his success to a guy called Mick Hag, who was in the business, his mother. Uh, the experience he got in New South Wales, and again his wife Helene and Nev, um, and then uh, Gordon Esden talks about you know you know the higher industry, you know, Nev Kennard um, uh, and his uh, um, and his uh, and his wife Marie. So you know all these industries of our industry you know, I've credited a lot of things back to some central and core sort of people around the place. One, the influence that their, their parents have had on them, the influence that um, their wives have had on them and the influence that two, two critical people in our industry, uh, Nev Kennard and Sam Greenberg has had on people, so.
0: It was quite crazy. I actually had someone, uh, it wasn't on the podcast. It was more of a written interview His name was Patrick Stevens. He came, he did an interview with me and we're going through everything. And he mentioned uh, his grandfather who, who was um, uh, uh, Greenberg from, um, that you mentioned just then as one of the mentors for Andy Kennard. And it just blew my mind. It was like, I I just interviewed the, the, the mentor for Andy Kennard. It just, it just shows how connected the industry is as well.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's the point I make by all those sorts of things. So, that's and crazy. and i think and and the nature of the industry it's it's um you know they they're very thoughtful and respectful understand what's made this industry good and continue to put in uh and and um continue to put into the industry and, and also uh, credit um the, the foundations that they got and where those foundations came from
0: mm. and so you mentioned some big names there but who who was your mentor who who who's some people that you think played a big part in, in who you've become today?
1: I'd break it into a couple of elements probably. I'd break it into um into three. Um clearly my father. Then I would go to sort of the big four from the rental sort of side that I was very lucky very lucky to have um and still do have uh so it's it's not past sense but very lucky to have Barry McDonald and Andy Kennard and Sam Greenberg uh, and um, and very early on uh, I did a bit with uh, Nev Kennard did uh, some some uh, hunting around and buying some of equipment with Nev so I think that four were very influential and then I think um, you know just the the broader collection of uh, Gordon Esden and uh, Des Willand and Rob Wallace were um, were particularly strong to me. Um, uh, in a in a broader sense, I think that you know just from a wider business sort of sense, uh, two guys, a guy called Paul Newman in Wollongong, who was my father's partner for very many years, uh, has been um, just a a, a good um, a broader business. Um, um learning um, or educator uh, and then um, you know I think um, the access to you know good understanding of financial sort of things has always been very important and a guy called John Starr has been particularly important to me on those things uh, and um then I then I think I think that the element that you've asked a bit of, uh, and they are the people who have worked inside the business. Um, I have always um, sort of counted so much on uh, the the uh, the thoughts and the you know the advice that um, the likes of um, you know the, those senior sort of people inside the 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 national high business and there's, you know, you know, the, the, the importance of, uh, the Greg Parfitts and the Adrian Mannings and, and, uh, those, those number of people, um, has been very important.
0: And it sounds like you and your, your father were very close.
1: Yes. He, um, he's an interesting sort of guy because he, um, was fiercely independent but he was um, he'd taken uh, he, he had a good relationship with his father and he worked with his father but he could see that he wanted to do something else and he was um, he was uh, then you know had the good fortune of his Arthur Donnelly his his um, relation to encourage him to uh, and and my grandfather and that that Arthur were very close so it was a natural sort of thing for Arthur to be a good mentor to dad. Dad always claims that uh, Arthur Donnelly had been the most influential person on his life. Um, and that uh, so dad, um, you know, he had that sort of interest. I think then dad, the mere fact that he just went on and grew the business and, you know, that those, those works included doing civil projects and digging caissons into the ground and taking you know significant risk about being able to do the jobs. I think his ability um, to hook up with um, uh, the likes of uh, Neville and Andy and and uh, Barry um, and learn how to uh, to grow the business. You know, together with the you know the Stevens in in uh, South Australia and the Wheelands and those sorts of things. So he was able to push outside his his comfort comfort zone. Um, and then he was able to t- teach me the importance of, um, you know, the the real estate side to the business too. That you know the importance of buying the property underneath your business, and that builds, you know, builds um, uh, adds to your wealth creation. Um, and his his hard work just never stopped. He uh, he was um, uh, he he was a hard taskmaster but he was gentle and kind at the same, at the same time. So you're right, Mark, big, big influence.
0: That's amazing. And it's, yeah, it's, it's clear to, it's very clear to understand that yeah, he's he's really helped shape the person that you've become today.
1: And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I think I read one of your questions, which was, you know, what could you say to future people? <clears throat> I think there's, I've just touched on one of them, which is the, you know, anybody who's into our industry, get on and grow the business, understand the cycles and the economics of it, the capital intensive, and manage your business through those cycles. Uh, if you possibly can buy the real estate under the business. That's the uh, the big thing to me, I think, is buy the... the my other second big one is that um, really ask you, you know, understand your own parents and uh, ask them all the questions, Um they're always, um, you know, more than generous. I reckon to give you the answers, and they can be uh, challenging and frustrating sort of people to all of us. Uh, but uh, you know, I think just understanding, you know, and I wish I'd asked my dad a hell of a lot more questions than what I did, um, and uh, to follow in their footsteps, mate. so
0: mm, that's, that's amazing. And I guess you you interviewed a few people at lunch and had some quotes. And so I had a few people yep. give me some quotes about you. So let's go the other direction. So I had a couple of people. So one person said, uh, if I was to run through a wall for anyone, it would be for Stephen Donnelly. I had someone else say, someone as pivotable, p- pivotable as St- Stephen Donnelly in the industry should have never ended up as humble as he is. And I had... Of course, Steve will come with a podcast. He's always looking at how he can help the industry. So all these these people, just these people, I randomly spoke to about you before before you coming on here, they be, be, have such high regard for you. So I guess my question is, what makes Stephen Donnelly Stephen Donnelly?
1: That's a pretty good question too. I reckon a couple of things. I think the uh, these are sort of left field, if you like, but I think. Um, and, and everybody's going to be able to find their their different sort of things, right? But one of mine comes from sport, that I think that uh, what sport teaches you is to be um, very resilient uh, and um, you're only as good as your last game. So that's the, you know, the, the resilience and the work hard and, the, and you know, um, it's up for other people to offer views on me. But if it's humble, it's because of those sorts of things. I think you need you need some self-confidence to be in business and succeed at business. But I think that you do need to be understand that it's really through other people's hard work that, that you actually get your success. So I think that's, you know, sport is one of the things that makes me. Um, and I think that has taught me a whole host of lessons about how to conduct yourself in you know, if you like a sportsman like manner and and, uh how you um how you uh how you treat other people at the at the same time. Uh and I think that the um I think it's just just that just so fortunate Mark that um uh that I was able to associate with all of those rental leaders and um and participate at meetings with them, travel overseas with them. Uh, at one stage, we went on an "In Search of Excellence" tour. So we went, um, you know, we went and visited a guy called Tom Peters. Had written, uh, you know, this will sort of date when this was, but Tom Peters wrote a book called "In Search of Excellence," and he, he had visited a number of businesses to see why they're so great. And um, Nordstrom's department store in uh, Seattle, uh, Ham, uh, McDonald's in Illinois Sewell Village Cadillac down in Texas somewhere um Stu Leonard somewhere else then we visited a few rental businesses half a few few different rental businesses so I think just that shared experience of everybody wanting to learn together and the collective moves on you know it's a fierce and fast world and you 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 are doing it not just for you know generosity but you're doing it because the you can learn and the collective can learn so I think that's one. Um, and I think that just the, um, you know, the lessons that my dad taught me, I think that's a, that's a uh, and I think any of those people that you spoke to or the majority of those people who have given you quotes um, would also probably, um, you know, know my dad or, um, or at least talk about him in a sort of similar vein like yeah. to think that it's a chip off the old block.
0: That's amazing and I think it's really important for people that don't have the parents to ask those questions too, that they find someone that can Correct. be that mentor. They can find, Correct. whether it be at work or a family friend or even outside of the business. It's really important to have someone to ask those questions like you mentioned.
1: Absolutely, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in our industry who are leaders in their business or business owners or, you know, branch managers somewhere or all of those sorts of things. And they're all trying to do a great job. And they just all need to be able to, and there's stress and pressures from work, there's stress and pressures from home, there's all sorts of, you know, stuff goes on. They need to be able to, is, is, they're going on their own, you know, quote unquote, in search of excellence tour. They need to be able to find someone that they can ask who's happy to be generous with some time and spend some time and give them a few ideas and you know, be brutally honest with some feedback, as Barry said his dad was able to be, but they've got to be able to find people who can, um, who can uh, you know, be on the journey with them and, and, and not threaten them around the place that you know, they can feel comfortable with, but are going to lead them hopefully in the right direction. You, the people have got to make their own decisions And people have got to find their own way, but it doesn't mean they can't have someone they can't bounce some ideas off.
0: Yep. And so if you were to give some advice to young Steve, what would you say?
1: Uh, I I do think... um, Nev Canard gave me this piece of advice once. He said, sometimes it's best, if you're not sure, it's best not to do something. And so be disciplined enough to have been able to think it through and prioritise and, and just say no or just put it to one side. So I think be, be absolutely ruthless um, with making, you know, a decision but don't be scared to say no or not to do something around the place is how I interpret it. Um, I think um, really find um, something that you can be um, really good at and, and that's going to take you, I think, you know, um, uh, in, the, in the tipping point or whatever book it might have been, they talk about 10,000 hours. Like it's going to take you a long time to find that good thing, but be uh, uh, persevere with, you know, if you're on that path, um, find out what it's going to be and become really good at it and continue to rework it and refine it um, so you get better and better. And we can look around our industry and see examples of companies and people who are doing that all day long. Uh, and then thirdly, I think you do need to, to um, uh, find a way to ask a better question uh, all the time. And the answers aren't always obvious, so you've got to keep hunting for it. Uh, and, and, uh, and the last thing I'd say is you, know, you really do need to um, – appreciate people, um, thank them regularly for their, for their work and their efforts and those sorts of things because, you know, not everybody has to do it. Um, so you do need to, you know, appreciate, be positive, be optimistic and, to, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, just appreciate people and thank people constantly.
0: Yeah, I remember I <laughs> interviewed someone once and I asked him, a similar question and he was he, this is someone in the uk and he said that one of the best qualities of his ceo is that he'll call him on a friday night after a long week and just say thank you and he was like yep i don't think people realize how much that means to an employee sometimes
1: just to be that simple recognition or understanding that you are actually looking at it and doing something i think it's the you know, some people call it management by walking around. I think that uh, you can do that. You know, on that Search of Excellence tour that we went on, someone had a poster up in their business, which was catch someone doing something good today. You know, these reminders, whatever they are, I think people have just got to use those things to go out. And um, and as we said, it's, it's a small part, a very small part of of my time or our time, but it's such an enormous thing to other people to, um, to, uh, to show people that you do, um, you do respect them and you do, uh, and you do appreciate what they do. And a, and a, a small thank you is, you know, probably worth, um, worth more than what we can, what we can imagine. It's really worth, it's got to be genuine though. I think that you've got to be genuine in this stuff. You can't be, you can't be uh, make-believe, but um Go and find it and do it. Catch someone doing something good today. It's not a bad thing to do. Mm,
0: that's a great quote. I like that. I have to write that down. So how do, you, how do you define success? And what do you think was maybe a defining moment for you?
1: It's about the people. I think if you can have um, uh, two ways. I think if you can have um, people who have had longevity with you and uh, been on the journey who you respect and you think are, uh, you know, great people and, you know, all those sorts of things. Uh, I think that's one thing. I think even as a, a bigger and broader element, and in fact, I said this in a meeting the other day to some people, uh, you may put a lot of time and effort into, you know, educating, nurturing, badgering, pushing, you know, doing all sorts of things with people around the place. And you're doing that because you're you, you're wanting them to grow and develop as individuals, but also to help you grow and develop your business. And sometimes uh, those people will move on, and some people can look at that as if you've, you know, wasted some time developing those people as they move on their journey. I don't agree with that um, because I think it gives you a great warm and fuzzy feeling uh, that you see people who you've worked with go on to be leaders in the uh, um and, and I use leader in the broadest sense of the word, not just people who are CEOs of these business, but people who are leaders at each element around the place they're doing whatever whatever they choose to do, leaders in the businesses who are just going on and doing great things. I think to see people progress and develop, not only within your own business or in the business that you're you're the CEO of or you work for, but see those people go off into the wider community and do a great deal. And equally, um, you really do love to see them and their uh, and their partners and their children progress and develop around the place Like seeing people who you know their families so you can bounce across them from time to time and, and you know in the workplace environment you might only see the partners and and you know children once or twice a year or five times in a career or whatever it might be but just to see how their kids are progressing, because you talk about them at work, to see where their progress and the development and what they're doing, I think that's that's a, a that's another part of the human element. So I think that's how I mark success, is it's really through the progress of people. Um, I was trying to think about, um, uh, I don't think, I, I, you know, it's, it's great to see businesses grow in size and all that stuff, but that's just a byproduct. I think. Uh, it's what we all do it for, absolutely. But it's just a byproduct. I think it's that that what people do, how they service the customers better, how they progress and develop themselves, how their families benefit from it. You know, all those things there. The, that's the. I really, as I as I waffle more and more because I'm trying to challenge myself to see if there's other elements. But I think that's it, Mark. I think it's it's all about the people.
0: Mm. And then what about for you? Do you think there was really a defining moment where everything just clicked?
1: I think I, think, I can think about the numbers, but I, I think about, um, I do think when, when, when that, when I, I, I think I mentioned it earlier that a management team sort of circa um, and we'd had a bit of a battering because in the early 2000s, we got impacted uh, very badly by an insurance claim. And it was when HIH had gone broke in 2000 or 2001, whenever it was. And that really um, stalled the business for a number of years. Um, and because we had this, uh, what, what had happened is HIH, we, we had, had a, uh, an industrial accident where a customer was, or two customers were badly injured. Uh, and the insurance company went broke, HIH went broke. And that left um, a lot of people without insurance. Government came with a rescue package, which we were too big for, um, so we didn't qualify for the rescue package. But the the insurance claim was was big, so we weren't big enough to be able to swallow it. So we had to, you know, negotiate our way through it. It took a few years for it to get through the court process. So during that period of time, you know, we were really in in marking time effectively. Um, and so I think two things out of that. The first one is um, the people in the business uh, knew what was going on, but they just knuckled down and did an even better job, uh, and it meant that the business uh, actually saw its way through it. Uh, and um, I think that was, you know, really a defining moment that um, uh, that even in, you know, and that that wasn't. An economic hardship, like you've got to manage through recessions and those sorts of things, and when a customer goes bad on you and doesn't pay, you got to do. You don't expect to get that sort of black swan event, um, and that came and impacted us. To, to think that the people who were working for the business at that time just stuck around and helped the business get through that was extraordinary. Um, out of that came, once we got through that, uh, came a recapitalization and then thinking about how we were going to go on and grow the business and what were our options, and uh, that's when um, that that management team um, then sat around a table uh, for a couple of days, wrote wrote up on butcher's paper and whiteboard about what the various options were, ranked those options, put a scale on them. Uh, would we go for distribution? Would we go for a product person? Would we go for a blah blah blah? Who would we? What would we try to buy? Partner with? direction we would go all that sort of stuff how would you handle distribution etc we went through and ranked it up and then we came up with a choice of what's to do we pursued that choice and ultimately we brought that one to the table and uh, we continued to get on and grow the business so I think that was the um, you know it was was um, you know out of adversity I guess is tough it out long enough uh, and then you find an opportunity and then that team's able to create and deliver up on that opportunity. So that was the defining moment. And that was in sort of 2000 and you know, 2002, 2003 or something. So,
0: Wow. That's a, that's a great story. I think a, a lot of people would be interested in in hearing about that. And I guess that really talks a little bit about how important safety is really in the industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was a, it was an industrial accident that, Again, wasn't our fault. The um, it was um, used in was used without without us authorising it. It was used in the wrong wrong place. All those sorts of things. Everything that that it's going to be. So you've got to be on top of it. That's the the difficulties in our game. That's why safety process. All of those things are just so so absolutely important around the place. But still stuff can happen so you need a backup plan around it so all
0: right steve look i really want to thank you for being so generous with your time uh thank you for coming on the rental journal podcast
1: it's a pleasure mark it's been uh um if i can ever do anything from the industry happy to do it
0: please like share follow the rental journal podcast and we'll see everyone in next episode